0: Good morning. Well, it's nice to see all of you. Um, If you have a Bible, would you please open it and join me in John 15? I just want to say thank you to my church family for your prayers and encouragements during this last season. For me and my family, it means a lot. We've been held up by you and appreciate it. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to get one in your hands. If you raise it, uh, please feel free to take it, keep it if you'd like, or leave it in your seat when you leave this morning. We are in John chapter 15. This morning is part three of looking at the same passage, John 15, 1 through 17, and Jesus's illustration of him being the true vine. We've been taking this diamond and turning it over in our hands, looking at different faces of this one text, hence part three this morning. So if you would, would you join me and look at verse one of John 15, I'm going to confine our attention to verses 1 through 6 this morning. Look along with me. Jesus says, I am the true vine. and My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. He is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Well, this is Christ's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you have done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. With the second person of the Trinity, clothing himself in flesh, truly God and truly man, sinless and perfect life, perfectly obeying you, our Savior, Jesus, living in our place, dying on the cross for our sins, and raising from the grave for our justification. Oh Lord, let us believe Jesus this morning. Let us receive his word and rejoice at it like one who finds great treasure. Would you satisfy us this morning with the love of God in Christ for us? And Lord, would you build us your church this morning? Lord, to that end, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, amen. He was a rising star in evangelicalism, if you can speak that way. He wrote a wildly successful book around the age of 20, got national, international notoriety, He was hired on at a very prominent church that was in the thousands, personally discipled by the senior pastor, trained to be the successor, which he did become. He stepped into the role of senior pastor at this mega church at the age of 30, preaching the gospel, preaching through scripture. And he did it for about nine years until he stepped down. And only in a matter of a few years later, To deny Christ and renounce his faith in 2019. Joshua Harris said that he excommunicated himself from his own congregation. How do we as Christians understand that? Um, I have my own stories that can be multiplied, especially when I was in college, but now over the years and decades. On a personal level, of people who I've seen claim Christ get on fire for Jesus and within three months disappear and renounce him. I've seen the same thing happen for, with people who walked with Christ for decades. Raised in Christian homes, professed Jesus at a young age and then, and then to deny him. And so the question is, can you unsave yourself? Does the Bible teach that your salvation ultimately and finally depends upon you and your desires? Can you lose your salvation? That's the subtitle of the message this morning. This is no idle question. It's personal to almost all of us. And the reason it's no idle question is because large segments of Christianity... Believe that this is true and teach it, that you can lose your salvation, that your salvation is insecure, that you can't have assurance because your salvation ultimately and decisively depends upon you and not God. This is a tenet of what is called Arminianism. It goes hand-in-hand with the notion, as Arminianism teaches, is that salvation ultimately depends upon you. God can't save you against your will, and so you are free, unaided by God, or uncoerced by God to get saved. And so it follows in this system that if you believe that, you also believe you can't stay saved, if you so choose. For the Arminian, the Christian is not secure in Christ, and may not persevere in the faith, Because their security and assurance and perseverance does not depend upon Jesus, but on them, what they feel and decide. And so this matters to you and me personally, because if this is true, you sitting right here, right now, can only have confidence in Christ insofar as you have confidence in yourself. Because it's you who hold Christ, ultimately, not Christ who holds you. Yes, Jesus is the Savior, but being saved belongs to you and not Jesus on this system. This matters because if this is true, then you can lose your salvation. Your wife can, your husband can, your children can, your parents can, your grandparents can, your friends can, we all can. And that means that you must locate your confidence and security in yourself. And you might be with us today, but next Sunday when we gather together and you look around the room, there might be people who have disappeared on the system because they have chosen freely to renounce Christ. I say all this this morning because our text in John 15 is a key text in the Arminian system to teach that you can renounce and choose to leave and lose your salvation. And the question is, is that so? Is Jesus' aim and intent in this beloved passage, as we take our third pass through it, is it Jesus' aim and intent in this passage to teach a true Christian can renounce Christ? Let's see. So our message this morning, as you take notes, comes to us in three parts. Like the previous two points, there's really just one point. Jesus is the true vine, so you must abide in Him. But there's three sub-points this morning. There are questions. And it's the question at hand, can a Christian lose salvation? For that, we will focus on verses 2 and 6. Then we will broaden our perspective in B, number 2. What of those who do fall away? And for that, we'll broaden the perspective, chiefly looking at 1 John 2 and Matthew 13. And then we will close our time with this question. Can a Christian have assurance of salvation? And for that, we will land on verse 3. Well, let's jump in. Our first point is this question. Can a Christian lose his or her salvation? What does it mean that the Father takes away bad branches? If you would, look again at verse 1. Let me read the first six verses again. Tune your ears to how one might understand losing your salvation. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Well, the key verses on this supposed idea that you can lose your salvation are verses 2 and 6. Again, in verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the Father, takes away. And verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and it withers and branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. So the Arminian interpretation goes something along these lines. Well, Jesus is the vine. We're the branches. Some branches are part of the vine. They don't bear fruit. So they're cut off, therefore a Christian can reject their salvation. That's kind of how the logic typically goes, case closed. Never mind the fact that in this text, it's not the branches who remove themselves and walk away, it's the Father who removes the branches. But never mind that detail. Let me just tell you now, that's wrong and horribly so. This is a doctrine that falls under the jurisdiction of orthodoxy within Christianity, but it's a bad doctrine, and you should not believe it. You should not believe it. We must remember, let me, let me prove to you why Jesus is not teaching that a Christian can lose her salvation. We must remember, Jesus is giving an illustration. He's advancing his teaching from the previous two chapters, 13 and 14. And we have to remember... Jesus is not literally a plant, and you are not literally a vegetative stick, though some of you might be confused as such. Jesus' larger point and purpose is to comfort his disciples. Don't lose the context. What does he say in John 14? Let not your hearts be troubled. And everything he says is to the end of, for his disciples, not letting their hearts be troubled. His his point in 15 is that we would remain in Jesus. Stay with Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Rely on Jesus. Abide in Jesus. Jesus intends this passage, not just for the apostles, but for you and me, to comfort us. Not stoke worry that you might be a branch that gets cut off. In this illustration, Jesus makes clear that only branches that abide, which means to believe, which means to obey his word, only branches that abide are the ones who bear fruit. And remember, they themselves don't bear the fruit. Jesus bears the fruit in them. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so what Jesus' point then is that the branches that bear fruit really prove to be actual living branches because Christ's life is in them and Jesus in them produces that fruit. So then what about the branches the Father cuts off in verse 2 and verse 6? Jesus' point is this. It's not that they once were bearing fruit, stopped, and are then cut off, therefore losing their salvation. Jesus's point is that they were never truly alive to begin with. They never truly believed to begin with. In other words, they were never a living branch in the first place. They were always dead. They never bore fruit. They were never truly part of the vine. Jesus' brilliant point here is the opposite of the Arminian position. Jesus' point is the opposite of losing your salvation. He's showing they were never saved in the first place. So to say this passage teaches you can lose your salvation completely misses Jesus' point and presses the illustration farther than it should go. They weren't living branches that died. They were dead all along. This passage cannot teach that you lose your salvation because it would also contradict what Jesus teaches everywhere in the Bible, but confining our attention to John, two points, John 10, 27. Would you turn over there and join me? John 10, 27, 28, and 29. Listen to what Jesus says here. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, verse 29, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Can you see the picture Jesus just painted in your mind? Jesus gives you eternal life. You will never perish, he says. And then the picture is, no one will snatch you out of Jesus' hand. But then verse 29 says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Do you see the picture? It's what we sang in Christ alone at the beginning of the service, that the Father and the Son, the Trinity, hold every single sheep those to whom he's given eternal life, they will never perish because you can't take them out of the son and the father's hand. And by the way, you can't jump out. And in John 17:12, spoiler alert, looking ahead to when he's praying to the father at the end of this dinner time, he says, while I was still with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, so that the scripture might be fulfilled, referring to Judas. When Jesus prays this to the Father, he is not just referring to those saints whom he saved when he was uh, doing his earthly ministry the first time, he's referring to all the saints that he will save, all of his sheep. He guards all of us. He gives all of us eternal life. None of us will perish. Only one does. And it's Judas, the son of destruction, so that prophecy might be fulfilled. So in John 15, when Jesus speaks of the Father removing branches, those branches withering, and those branches being tossed into the fire, this vine image does not teach or contradict these other passages that you can lose your salvation. It actually strengthens Jesus' teaching that you should be assured of your salvation, which we'll see in the third point. But there might be a question in your mind as it is in mine, but what of those who fall away? What of Joshua Harris? What of the different names that we can all uh, combine together, then how do we understand those who fall away? If we see people who deny Christ, but you can't lose your salvation, how do we understand those who fall away? For that, we're going to two passages, 1 John 2 and Matthew 13. I invite you to turn there, and we'll get there in a few minutes. So by way of summary, broadly speaking, the New Testament gives us two categories that help us understand those who seem to fall away now i say seem because we are evaluating people from our earthly finite perspective we're evaluating on just fruit that we can see only god knows the heart only god knows whom he has elected Only God knows the mysterious twists and turns of his providential sovereign plan. So some seem to have fallen away. Let me explain. So the two categories of those who seem to fall away in the New Testament are these. Number one, prodigals or lapsed Christians. Prodigals or lapsed Christians. And the other category is false converts. So prodigals or lapsed Christians and false converts. Let's, let's take the first one. These two categories for us to understand when we look at the fruit in someone's life and hear what they say and what they do and we evaluate their fruit. What are prodigals and lapsed? A prodigal or a lapsed Christian are those people who are genuine, regenerate, born-again believers but whom for a season fall into sin or heresy. It might be brief, it might be prolonged, and they're falling into sin or they're embracing of heresy, false teaching, false doctrine, that on the surface tells us, communicates to us, that it gives all the hallmarks they may not be saved. So, for example, there is the parable of the prodigal son, which is where this idea comes from in Luke 15. It serves as an example of a true son who, who leaves the father, lives a life of foolishness and sin, functionally renounces his uh, patronage, his dad, only to come to his senses and eventually return home. That's the parable of the prodigal son. Peter Good old Peter serves as a double example of a lapsed Christian. What do I mean? Do you remember when Jesus was captured and legally tried what Peter did? Peter publicly denied Jesus Christ three times during Jesus' trials. And so it took Jesus rising from the grave and going to Peter to restore and recommission Peter to feed his sheep. Peter lapsed that evening, and we don't know the state of his heart until, well, he saw the risen Christ. But that's just not it with Peter. Do you remember the book of Galatians? In the book of Galatians, what did Peter do? Peter got swept up in the heresy that denied justification by faith alone. Peter and Barnabas and others got swept up into the heresy that you had to be justified by faith and the work of circumcision to be saved. And so it took the Apostle Paul to go and publicly rebuke and restore Peter. In these examples, the prodigal son never stopped being a son. Peter, both in his denials and in his heresy, never stopped being saved, never stopped being a believer. But for a season, from outside appearances, if we were there watching and listening, it looked like they did not belong to God from our perspective. And they maybe even have denied God, and for even from their perspective. But from God's eternal perspective, they were still saved the whole time. Peter never got unsaved, And the prodigal son never got unsunned. But again, they are both examples of those who should have been disciplined by the church. That's one of the chief purposes of church discipline, is to bring a prodigal or lapsed Christian back to their senses. If someone, and we don't know, is prodigal or lapsed, one of my points is, as we look at the prodigals and lapsed, and those who are false converts, They look the same from our perspective. So so we, we are given instructions in the Bible how to treat both groups, but only God knows which group a person is part of, which means that we have grace and humility, firmness and scriptural conviction, and speak the truth in love. So that means for both groups, but in this case, the prodigals and the laps, it takes prayer, tears, time, the word of God, And the people of God to bring prodigals and lapsed Christians back. But they always come back. They may not come back until you're with Christ. But they always come back. They always come back. That's where we trust and hope in God's sovereign, mysterious, painful and bitter providences. And again... This is the central purpose of why we are responsible by Christ in Matthew 18 to exercise church discipline. To help a prodigal or lapsed Christian recognize that the prodigalness or lapsedness is not okay for them, for us, and especially Christ. But the other category is false converts. You actually don't find that phrase in the Bible, false converts, but it's a helpful designation for an umbrella idea. What do I mean? So the Bible speaks of false teachers, false prophets, false brothers, false apostles, false Christs, and wolves. It's 2 Peter, it's Matthew, it's Acts 20, it's Galatians 2, it's 2 Corinthians 11, it's Mark 13. I can give you those texts. So the umbrella term is they're false converts. That they look like Christians, talk like Christians, act like Christians, might even think they're Christians, but they're false. They're, they're not. And you can actually, with those different descriptions I gave, false teachers, false prophets, false apostles, and so on, there's different categories. So, for example, the false brothers of Galatians 2, we discover, are intentionally false brothers. They're wolves. They know they're not believers. And Galatians 2 talks about how they snuck in To discover their freedom in Christ and then pervert and destroy the whole thing. Try to destroy Christianity. So some false converts know they're false converts and they go in to destroy the work of Christ. But others, the New Testament reveals, maybe don't recognize or realize that they're false converts. And they eventually leave. Case in point, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, you've heard me say it in the past, uh, quite a few times in the past. The more I interact with 1 John and compare it to the Upper Room Discourse, it really looks like that 1 John is a commentary on the Upper Room Discourse. And in 1 John chapter 2, I only have time to read one verse, but please write down 1 John 2, 18 to 23. That's the lengthy passage. But in verse 19, here's what John says. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued or remained or abided with us. But they went out so that it might become plain that they all are not of us. What's John doing? John is describing people who, for a time, live as a part of the church, maybe even baptized, maybe even saying biblical things, praying biblical prayers, maybe even teaching the Bible, maybe even preaching the Bible, maybe even sharing the gospel and seeing people converted, but ultimately, at some point, deny the Son and leave the fellowship of the saints. That's John's point. They went out from us because they were not of us, referring to the fellowship of the saints, referring to the local church. Any gospel preaching, local church. He says again if they'd been of us, if they were part of the fellowship of the saints, they would have continued with us, but they went out so that it might become plain that they were not of us. This could be a very public departure through discipline or like Joshua Harris. Going online, going on talk shows, going on TikTok, going on whatever form it is, and professing and pronouncing, renouncing Christ. It could be very public, or it could be a disappearance. It could be that a person simply slips away and disappears. They left the church because they were never truly part of the church, because they were never truly part of the vine of Christ. They were dead branches all along. They may have been... Interested in, you could even say attracted to the things of Jesus, the promise of free grace and salvation, the remission of sins covered by the blood of Christ, eternal justification, new heavens and new earth and more, but at the end of the day, it was attractive, but they weren't buying what we were selling, so to speak. They were dead branches all along. And there's an aside to this truth that is very important for us to understand how Jesus designed Christianity to work and local churches to work. And here's the aside. The reality that some go out from us because they were not of us, that reality has significant bearing on our shared responsibility, not just the elders, the whole church, as a church on Christians who stop attending church. You see, in our individualistic, autonomous, self-addicted age, you know, we think that church life is an optional accessory and add-on to our life together, not not with Jesus. And it's, in fact, the whole local church bears responsibility that when someone goes missing, right, if your uncle disappears from the Thanksgiving table and you don't hear about it, it's alarming. Something's wrong. So if a Christian just stops out on the local church, that's not a good sign. It's not a neutral sign. Indeed, it's a bad sign It's like a a yellow flag um, waxing orange to red. That there's danger. That we need to go in pursuit of that brother or sister to see how they are doing. It may be that they are despondent and depressed and they're wrapped and caught in sin. They're moving prodigal and they just need the love of Jesus through you to come and bring them home. Or maybe they're a false convert. But we go after them. So this has bearing that when people leave, we don't just let them leave. If we find out that another good gospel preaching church, Grace, Flag Bible, uh, Harvest, or Flag Bible was Harvest, but if we find out that another good gospel preaching church, praise the Lord. Would you please tell us next time when you leave? But when someone is not in any gospel preaching church, that's the alarm. We want to find out, are they prodigal and lapsed? Are they a false convert? So in 1 John 2, his aim is to show us that when some people leave, they were never of us to begin with. Or consider, actually pause for a second. Uh, One of the things that you guys get is what the first service doesn't get with all the conversations I have in between services. What about all the warning passages in Hebrews? Um, That's a big conversation, but let me just say this. The, uh, The Hebrews warning passages are in keeping in parallel with 1 John 2. They went out of us because they were not of us. You can read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39, and after he gives all those warnings, the preacher of Hebrews says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but persevere in the faith. So the writer of Hebrews, self-consciously, because it's a sermon, he's preaching this, it's a sermonic letter, he's preaching it, he thinks all of you will persevere. All these warnings I gave, they weren't for you, they were for those who fall away. The prodigals elapsed, the false convert. But consider Jesus' parable of the soils, Matthew 13. If you would turn there, I don't have time to read the entire parable. I'm going to read to Jesus' explanation. Matthew 13, verses 18 to 23. This passage will help us understand the notion of false converts and answer that question, what are those who fall away? Different from prodigals, different from the lapsed. Listen to what Jesus says. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while This is the one that hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. Notice in this parable how closely related it is to the illustration of the vine. The issue in John 15 is fruit-bearing. The issue in Matthew 13 is also fruit-bearing. But of these four different soils, four different hearts, only one Bears fruit, and that's the good soil. The other ones received the word but bore no fruit. Right? The first one, Jesus gives us four heart responses to the gospel. The first one immediately rejects Jesus. No, I do not want to believe that Jesus is the God man. I do not want to believe that Jesus uh, lived perfectly in my place, died on the cross to atone for my sins forever, and rose from the grave. No thanks. That's what the first soil does. The fourth soil receives and believes, hoorays and obeys and bears fruit for Jesus. but it's those middle two that relate to the topic at hand, the notion of false convert. The two soils, neither of which bears fruit but they hold on to, they're attracted to the gospel of Jesus, the Word of God for a season but both fall away because they were false converts. For some, it's suffering in this Matthew 13 parable. It's the suffering, trials, and persecutions. It's suffering for Jesus and with Jesus, being persecuted for Jesus and with Jesus, that people say, nope, Jesus is not worth it. I'm out. He is not a sturdy God. The gospel is not sturdy and and worthy of my belief. I'm out of here. And the other one was this seduction of all the pleasures of the world. It's the person who chooses the pleasures of the world rather than the reproach of Christ and wants the fleeting pleasures of sin rather than the ways of Jesus. These two soils, the middle ones, represent false converts. They went out of us because they were not of us. Which, by the way, there's another aside here. The reality of the soils has implications for baptism. And it has implications for you parents in discerning when the time is right for your children to be baptized. Meaning, that's why we don't engage in spontaneous baptism. And it's not the norm of scripture. Instead, there's a period of charity and credibility that allows for the testing of the soils of the person who wants to get baptized or a young person before we put them in the water to identify with the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's another aside, but it's an important reality we have to take into consideration. So Judas is a chief example of the soil that loved the world more than loving Christ and that Judas went out from us. Remember chapter 13. So what about Joshua Harris? I mentioned at the beginning. His repudiation of Christ continues to give every indication he was never a true believer. It's shocking. It's sad. We pray for his salvation. But maybe he's lapsed. Maybe he's prodigal. Only God knows. He's doing harm to the gospel. He's acting as an enemy of the gospel in a very pious way. But only God knows. So we pray for him. And what about those in my life and in your life who on the surface, we don't know if they're prodigal or lapsed, or if they're a false convert. Everyone needs the gospel. Everyone needs the grace of Jesus. Everyone needs unceasing prayer. And as I said earlier, it may be that it's not until you lie in the grave that the seed of the gospel sprouts in their life by God's grace. So don't give up hope. But be firm with the truth of Scripture. And if someone is a false convert, to help them understand that they are not a true convert if we see it. But the point in all this is that the testimony of Scripture and in John 15 and branches being removed is that people who fall away, people who deny the faith, even if they're a significant part of the church, they don't lose their salvation. They're either denying it for a season and fooling themselves or they never had it in the first place but do not believe that you can lose your salvation. And for that, I need to prove it to you. Finally, can a Christian have assurance of salvation? Yes. Look at verse 3. John 15, verse 3, hidden in plain sight, overshadowed by all the debates regarding losing your salvation or not. The answer in plain sight is verse 3. Listen to what Jesus says. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. This is missed in English. There's a play in words and sounds going on in the Greek. The word for clean in verse 3 is the same word as pruned elsewhere in this passage. It's the same word, and it's a, uh, but just with a different grammatical form. And then in the Greek, there's also a play on sounds when it says the Father takes away. The Greek word sounds like the word already cleaned, specifically cleaned. There's a play on words going on here. This passage then can just as be easily be translated as Jesus telling them, you are already pruned because of the word I have spoken to you. So what's the point? Can you have assurance of salvation? Christian, you can only have assurance of salvation. What do I mean? The disciples, do you see the tense? Already. Jesus doesn't say, you might be clean in the future. After a period of testing, then you'll be clean. Jesus looks at his brothers and apostles right there and he says, already you were cleaned past tense, done, and completed. In other words, the disciples are to have no fear of turning into Judas's. If you were sitting there, might not you be tempted to wonder, wait, if Judas is leaving to go betray Jesus, what if that's me? And I think many of us Deep down, struggle with the notion of security of the believer and assurance of salvation because we wonder, well, but what if next Sunday I wake up and I decide I don't want Jesus anymore and prove to be a false convert? That's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to rest in this grace where Jesus says you are all ready, clean. Please don't miss this. Jesus is telling the apostles, you should be assured of your salvation. You are secure in your salvation. Why? Upon whom does their salvation depend? Jesus. Already you are cleaned because of all the stuff that you did. That's not what it says. Already you're clean because of the word I spoke to you. It is the power of Christ that saves, and it's the power of Christ that keeps saved, and it's the power of Christ that preserves us to the end. There to have confidence the security of their discipleship to jesus is not based on them The security of their discipleship to jesus is based on jesus so it's not how hard peter can hold on to christ it's john 10 again christ and the father holding you does anyone want to say amen to that Don't miss this. Jesus isn't teaching you can lose your salvation. Verse 3 is a neon sign. It's an e-brake that stops any misinterpretation of the text. Jesus is teaching these apostles ought to be assured of their salvation. And friend, you can too. What Jesus says to them, he says to you. Already you are clean because the word I have spoken to you. Listen, listen, hear me. False converts don't worry about losing their salvation. So even if deep down inside there's a low-grade anxiety that you have, that you don't want to renounce Christ, how how could I leave the Savior who loved me so and did all that He could do for me that I can't do for myself to save me? I don't want to leave Him, but my faith feels weak. And sometimes my sin seems greater than my faith. And my, and as a, if I, my Bible reading is not very good. I don't share the gospel as much as I should. And I'm a poor prayer and all those things. It's Jesus who holds you. False converts don't worry about pleasing Jesus. False converts don't worry about losing their salvation. The Bible does say, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Second Corinthians, let's have a test. Survey the parable of the soils that we looked at a few moments ago. Friend, have you gone through suffering? Even persecution for Jesus? Has there ever been people in your life who have said things, done things to make you feel like and think like you shouldn't believe in Jesus and follow him? It's called persecution. It's one species of it. Have you gone through suffering that would tempt you to deny Christ because he's not coming through the way that you want him to come through and are praying and it might cause you to think he's not real? But have you passed through suffering and passed through persecution being held by Jesus and still worshiping him? Then, friend, you're, you're not that second soil, you're a believer. Have you been tempted by the love of the world and the seductions of sin and and all the riches the world has to offer, but instead you've chosen Christ? Maybe you fell and did succumb to sin, but then you he picked you back up and through fellow believers and you continue to follow him. Then you're not the third soil. You're the fourth soil, the believing soil. Examine yourselves. And if you can't inspect yourself, ask those closest to you those questions. Part of being the body of Christ is the glorious grace of others reminding us of our baptismal testimony, others reminding of us of how we've persevered in Christ. The witness of others helps us. Be assured of Jesus' oak-like salvation of you. It can't be taken. So again, I ask is Jesus' point to teach in John 15, that your salvation belongs to you and you can lose it if you want. Is Jesus implying that a sheep can unsheep himself? Can an adopted child unadopt herself? Can a born-again person unborn-again themselves? Can a person brought from death to life by Jesus and darkness to light by Jesus... Go back to death and da- back to darkness unilaterally. Can the bride of Christ divorce herself from the groom Jesus? Can the temple of God de temple itself? Can a body part of the body of Christ dismember itself? Can a fruit bearing branch stop bearing fruit even though Jesus alone is the fruit bearer? No and never. Jesus is encouraging discouraged hearts what does he say let not your hearts be troubled he's in, he's encouraging the discouraged hearts of the disciples and you and me that we should not be uncertain or shaken about our salvation you will persevere because god will preserve you why because your salvation your sanctification and your glorification are all depend upon Jesus. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who's going to bring a charge against you? God's elect. It's God alone who justifies. Who's going to condemn you? It's Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that was raised. Who's at the right hand of God interceding for you? Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it's written, "Fear, sake we're being killed all day long, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No. In all these things you are more than a conqueror through Jesus who loves you. For we are sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor depth, nor height, nor anything else in all creation, including you, will be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Be tranquil. In the assurance of your salvation. False converts don't worry about walking away from Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, this is Jesus speaking to you from his word to swear allegiance to his kingship, to renounce and repent of your sins and turn to the Savior. And find all of your sins, past, present, and future, washed away with the blood of Christ. And the father with his adoptive and loving eyes looks upon you and says, My son, my daughter, if you don't know Jesus, come to him. And by God's gracious and strange providence, you might be prodigal. It is time to come home. It's time to end that relationship, maybe leave that job, move out of that house, whatever it is, come home. In the prodigal story, the father with tears in his eyes runs to the son. So if you sit here and think, no, my sin is too great, I've denied him too much, I have misrepresented the gospel, he won't take me back. He already has. Come to Jesus. And friend, it may be that you are confused and think that you're a Christian, that you're not. You might be one of those false converts. I may have rehearsed those parables of the soil, and you, you, you might think that, no, that, 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 that is me. I do love the world more, I do love sin more, and be saved. Be justified by grace through faith. Confess Jesus. Ask Him. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And church, what do we do? We rejoice. You rejoice. Because your salvation does not depend upon you. It depends upon Jesus. And He has promised, in every possible way, to hold you with the Father. And that you will never perish. So in those moments, when you do examine yourself, and you do worry, let that worry and anxiety drive you back to the only place that can be removed, and that's the foot of the cross and the throne of Christ. And remember that He has already loved you forever, saved you forever, and cleansed you forever. Church, rejoice that your salvation and security belong to Christ and not you. Rejoice that it's now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Rejoice in your assurance. Amen? Amen. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of Jesus, the sheer wonder and magnificence of your gospel plan that it doesn't depend upon us. Lord, even so, the talk of prodigals and lapsed believers and false converts is is a unique sorrow and pain in all of our hearts. And Lord, all the names that flood before our eyes in our tears of those who don't yet know you, who we thought once did, but don't, oh God, grant repentance. Lord, here we are, send us, use us, use your body We're thankful, Lord, that the salvation of people doesn't depend upon us, but the work of your gospel through the whole church. And so, Lord, save. For those, Lord, who struggle with doubt, struggle with assurance and security, let them feel the warm weight of your unbreakable salvation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.